The plan this morning is to continue the ascent as we have been looking in Psalms. And so we're going to look at Psalms 126 and 127 this morning. 126 and 127. Let me read, we'll start as we have been with Psalms 126 first. And it reads thus, A song of ascent. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue was shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home again with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaths with them. And so really, again, these uh, psalms were not written together by a single author, but instead inspired by the Holy Spirit and were gathered in this order. But we see that it makes sense. We remember in verse or in chapter 125 from last Sunday, we said that the rod will not rest on those who love the Lord. And so here we see the removing of the punishment, the removing of the rod, if you will, and the joy that then follows it. Joy that is like a dream. Now, dreams are interesting things because we don't always understand them, and maybe they're not always something to be understood. But something that is very um, common in dreams is that they're unreal and we can't believe them. Now, you think about maybe the dream you had this morning, although we've probably forgotten it, or a dream that you remember. It's usually something kind of unreal. It's like, did that? That can't happen. There's no way that this could really happen. And so when we talk about being set free and it being like a dream, when we consider what we have been set free from, it is the exact same way. When we have set in our sin and realized who we are before an almighty God, and when we have been, as we discussed last week, set free from the captor's snare, and we are no longer under that burden, it's like a dream. How on earth could this be possible? So we understand here that the Lord has done such wonderful things by releasing us that it is like a dream. We are lifted out of our horrid state, out of our depression and despondency, and we are raised into a wonderful, beautiful relationship with him. And it is so unimaginable, it's almost like we're dreaming. And it's beautiful to look at. I was reminded while reading this of Acts 217 and it says this and in the last days it shall be God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all the flesh and your sons and daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams well the Lord has most certainly poured out his spirit amongst us we saw that very evidently a few weeks ago didn't we and as we go throughout our lives if we know him the Lord will pour out his spirit on us And it will be, on occasion, like a dream, better than we could possibly imagine. And then look at the result of this in verse 2. It says here that our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. Now, I often describe this church to people that I meet as kind of a, a country church. I don't know how else to describe it. I think that makes pretty good sense. None of us are probably offended by any of that. But we follow more of a, an older 
pattern and tradition. Careful not to worship that pattern or tradition, if you understand what I'm saying. That can be wrong as well. I've been in churches where they've, they've followed a, an old path that they ended up worshiping that over the Lord, if you will. In many of the churches that I've been in, especially smaller ones who I would classify similar to this, I have heard people on occasion shout. How many of you have heard that? Some here, I'm sure, too, right? You ever heard anybody uncontrollably giggle or laugh in a church? Maybe a little more rare. Uncontrollably giggle or laugh when overwhelmed with the Spirit. I have. Amy, you have too. This idea that we are so overwhelmed with the fact that we are set free, that there is nothing left for us to do on occasion than to joyfully laugh or shout to the Lord, to just give Him praise. When there is a time when there is nothing left in us, words cannot express where we are at other than just to simply say, Amen to shout, to praise the Lord however we possibly can. Because if we hold it in any longer, it is going to burst right out of us. Maybe you've been there at home. Maybe you've been there with a small group of people. Maybe you've been there in a church service or a church setting. But it is this idea that the Lord has relieved us. He has removed this rod from us. We are so blessed, so loved, and so full of His Spirit that there is it's almost impossible to do anything. And sometimes this results in a shout or a laugh, and I think that this is what this is talking about. Then their mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. And then look at this. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Sometimes we have to be careful because we want to praise ourselves. But the reality is, it is only the Lord who does great things for us. And when we speak, when we shout, when we laugh with praise, we must do it before the world in a way that gives honor and glory to Him, not to ourselves. To Him, not to our physical church. To Him and not unto another. And we have to know where our hope comes from, if you will. If you remember that from a few weeks ago. And when we do, when we understand correctly, it will be our natural thing to do to tell others that the Lord has done great things for us. This is why I encourage us often throughout a service, and we have open prayer requests as we just had, and many poured out their hearts and their blessings. This is why I give time and an opportunity for those who feel so led by the Spirit to stand and to speak to certain things in the church to give God the the praise and the glory. This is why, among other reasons, we ask for a testimony when you come forward to join the church so that we can rejoice with you, so that we can know that you are saved and we can know that you are following the admonition of the Lord, which is to speak your faith in Him. And so when our mouths are filled with laughter and our tongue is shouts of joy, we should proclaim it among the nations that the Lord has done great things. This is something we ought to be doing. And we are reminded of this. In verse 3, the Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. That's really simple, isn't it? The Lord has done great things for who? For us. The result is we are glad. 
It's a very simple verse. The Lord has blessed us, has he not? Even in some of our most difficult times, when we really stop and consider, we realize what a great blessing that we have. If you were here, I believe it was Wednesday night or the Wednesday night before, we were reminded of that, weren't we? Of a great instruction that we can and should ought to bear our burdens to the Lord. But sometimes when we are feeling down, when we are frustrated, maybe we should go around people that we know and think about the blessings that they are for our lives. Because I was overwhelmed as we went around the room and did that. Because I was reminded of what a blessing each of you are to me. But in that blessing, I wasn't praising you. I was praising who? The Lord. See, we need to remember that the Lord has done great things for us. Not that we have done great things for the Lord. That'd be backwards. The Lord has done great things for us. And the Lord will continue to do great things through us to others. And we are to be glad because of that. We are blessed greatly. We are blessed individually. And we are blessed as a collective group. And from this, we need to praise him and we can be glad. Verse 4 continues, it says, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. <coughs> Excuse me, the King James reads it this way, Turn again our captivity. Now this is a somewhat difficult verse to understand because it isn't necessarily the clearest to us in English. There are a couple possible explanations for what it means. The one that I kind of lean toward, although I won't argue too much if you have a different interpretation, is the idea that we should be mindful and in prayer for those who are still in captivity. Restore to us the remembrance of what it was like when we were in bondage. And that on behalf of that, we go to the others who still are. When we remember, if you take last Sunday's lesson, when you remember what it was like to be ensnared in a net of sin, and then be let free, we should be praying for those who we know who are still ensnared in society. Whether that be our friends, our close relatives, or those who we know, or those just in general, we ought to remember and be reminded of what it was like to be captive and now to be set free. That joy that we've talked about, the gladness that this chapter talks about. And we should be praying for the Lord to restore or set free those who are in bondage. What will that be like? Well, the verse tells us, streams in the Negev. Now, maybe you've never been to Israel. I haven't either. That's a desert. It's a desert, a very large desert area in Israel. And the idea that you're going to have a stream there is going to be something that flows there that nourishes everything around it. So when we are praying to restore our fortunes or to turn again to our captivity, we are praying for the Lord to provide water in the desert. Let me read another verse that talks about this. Isaiah 43, verse 18 through 21. It says, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. 
Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. See, the reality is we live in a desert, spiritually, just where we're at in our everyday lives. And it is only the Lord who is the water, that is the spirit that brings flourishing and life. All around us, we have people in this world who are literally dying of thirst, who have no idea what's going on. And it is only the river that comes from the Lord, the water that springs up, that gives uh, nourishment to the animals and to the ground that are around it. And we are to praise him for this. And we are to ask for this to come. This is the release. This is the abandonment of sin. This is why we are restored and why it is like a dream. Because we've turned the desert, the dry land that is cracked and open, begging for any moisture. And the Lord is the one who sends it like a stream in the desert. Brothers and sisters, as I mentioned before we began, the world is a desert. We're not the water. He's the water. Our job is only to find those who are lost and dying of thirst and point them to the water, saying, come and drink. That's all our responsibility is, is to praise the Lord and point to the river, the source of all good things, the source of life. The only place in life in the desert is where the water is, to point to that and to take people there. Now we move on and it says, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. A couple of things on this verse to be remembered. Our present trouble does not last forever. No matter how difficult the time is that we're going through, we reap with tears. I'm sorry, we sow with tears, we plant tears, and we gather with joy. This is important for us to remember. It can be very difficult sometimes. We can feel as though the situation that we are in is going to last forever, but the reality is it will not. Now, here's a question. It says, those who sow in tears, and sowing means planting, so those who are planting in tears shall reap or harvest with shouts of joy. Consider this. Will we harvest with shouts of joy if we don't reap with tears? I'm sorry, if we don't plant with tears? How do we know good without knowing some bad? Are we more thankful for the good times after coming through the bad? I think we are. And I think sometimes we don't consider them for what they are. For let us remember, it says that those who plant with tears will harvest with shouts of joy. Not only do our tears not last for all times, there's this idea that we will harvest with joy, likely because of the tears with which we planted. We also remember that there must be a planting before the harvest too. 
It's easy to always want to harvest and eat the fruit, but we have to do the work to get the outcome. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 says this, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Planting isn't always easy. It's painful. It's tedious. We've completely lost this concept in our society because we've had these really large multi-million dollar objects that are either a very specific yellow, red, or green that we drive through our fields and plant things for us. Maybe in our little corner of the world, we've experienced this more than most other people because you still have to plant tobacco. I don't know if anybody's done that or seen that. You sit in the back of the tractor and you have to bend over and plant it. Planting seeds, I'm just going to guess, is not fun. Every few inches, you've got to have a little hole. You've got to pick something up with your fingers. You've got to bend over, put it in, cover it back up. You do that over and over and over again. The point of this is obedience. That's what it is. It's not always fun to plant. I like to skip to the end and harvest, but it doesn't work that way. We have to be obedient And if we plant a lot, we will gather a lot. And if we plant a little, we will gather very little. So not every task is joyful, but for every task we must be obedient. The King James also calls them precious seeds, something that has great value. So here's the question. What seed of great value are you planting? Are you filled with joy? Do you tell the world? When we are filled with joy, when we are reminded of how we have been set free to be a part of the Lord, and we live a life worthy of that calling, and we are planting the seeds as many as we can, no matter in good times or in bad, no matter how it hurts or how it's good, if we plant and we plant and we plant the good, the precious seeds, that is the seeds of life that only Jesus Christ can do. If we obedient to that, he gives the increase and we get to have joy at the harvest. And so I wonder, are we filled with joy? Are we telling the world? And are we planting with our precious seeds? Or maybe... We're too distracted to plant, wondering why we don't get to harvest. Maybe we're wanting to avoid the tears and the hurt involved with planting and then wondering why we don't see the harvest. I want to move to chapter 127, and we'll try to bring this together as we close here after this. Chapter 127 is probably several verses we are familiar with, especially the first two. As I read this, I want you to just point out the key word in the first two verses is vanity. And then we'll look at those verses in the last section. Psalms 127 reads this way, A song of ascent of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, 
the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sheep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. And so again, as I mentioned, the first two verses are ones we've probably heard before. If you've been around a church for very long and these are uh, quoted um, offhand and oftentimes used correctly and sometimes incorrectly. As I mentioned, this word vanity is in there three times. Well, what does a vanity mean? It means a fruitless endeavor or desire or labor that produces no good. So if you go to work every day and then someone refuses to pay you, you would say, well, it was pointless. It was vanity to do that. If you plant seed after seed after seed and it never grows, then it was pointless or you did it in vain. There was vanity in it. There was no reason to do that. And so when we look at this, it says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it work or labor in vain. Now, are we really talking about physical houses? Well, I don't think so. I think this is talking about a spiritual house. This idea that we should be building up ourselves and together as a community. And if we do not depend on the Lord to do that, but instead try to force it our own way, then it's pointless and there is vanity in there. We can labor and work all we want to, but if the Lord is not with us and the Lord is not in the work, we will not see the reward. It will be a failure. Without God, there is nothing. Now, unfortunately, we see this in ourselves. We see this in our families. And we see this in churches sometimes. That we desire to do a good thing. We strive to do a good thing. We think that we are planting a good thing. But if the Lord is not with us individually, with our families, and with our churches, then it all comes to nothing and it is completely pointless. If the Lord is not here with us, then there is no reason for us to be here. It's pointless. If the Lord isn't with you in what you're doing, whether it be at work or at school or at home or in your conversation with the people that you meet, then it is completely pointless. Now, at the same token, this is not a license to do nothing. It tells us to build, it tells us to labor, and it tells us to watch. So we are to do those things. We are to be about building our lives. We are to be about laboring for our good and for others' good. And we are about being watchful for those who want to come in and steal it. But understand, doing those things is different than the result. We are simply to be obedient. It is Christ, our Lord and Savior, who gives the result and the increase. So we are to build, we are to labor, and we are to watch. But we must not do it in vain that is without the Lord. And studying for this, here's a quote I found. We must do all we can, but never forget that it is vain unless the creator puts forth his power to make it effectual. 
We can build a great, big, huge church building, but if the Lord isn't in it, it doesn't matter. We can build a great, big earthly family, my physical family, but if the Lord is not there, it doesn't matter. I can attain to great heights within my career, within my job, have vast amounts of money, but if the Lord is not in it, then it doesn't matter at all. And I will have spent my entire life working, laboring, and watching in vain for nothing when it all just goes away. Is the Lord in it? Are you working for him? Or are you working in vain? Verse 2, it says, It is vain if you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sheep. Another translation reads it this way. It says, It is useless for you to work so hard from early morning until late at night, anxiously working for food to eat, for God gives rest to his loved ones. We are to work and we are to watch, and then we are to rest in the Lord. Again, this isn't a license to say that we never have to consider how we're going to eat, how we're going to clothe or care for our family, what direction we're going to go and the things we're going to do. But we can worry about that all we want to and it doesn't bring it about. What brings it about is obedience and the love of the Lord. Remember the human hand without God's hand, is useless. And the human eye to watch without God's eye is blind. We must rely on Him to be effective in our lives. Now verse 3 through 5, this one you may have heard before. You ever heard of the quiver full movement? Well, a quiver, for those who may not know, because that's an unusual word, is usually like a cylindrical like leather basket you put on your back and have your arrows in it if you're an archer. So when we talk about a quiver, that's what that's talking about. right? This idea, this is uh, something that holds extra arrows that you're going to shoot. And I'm afraid that many times this verse is slightly misapplied and misunderstood. The, the concept of the, the quiver full movement, among many things, encourages families to have as many children as possible based on this verse. So behold, children are a heritage, or some translations will say a blessing from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Here's an interesting thought. How big is a quiver? It's not very big. I would only imagine that some are bigger than others. So maybe someone's quiver isn't full until they have eight, nine, or ten children. Maybe some have a smaller quiver and it's one or two. So we need to be careful how we apply this. But let's look at the beginning here. Children are a blessing and a reward, not a penalty or punishment. Children are a blessing and a reward, not a penalty or a punishment 
or seen as a burden. Now, anyone who's a parent will freely confess there are some days it doesn't feel like that. (laughs) But the reality is they are a blessing. But I want to just briefly talk about something that's important for us to understand. This isn't the only way that someone is blessed. And it doesn't mean that if you don't have children that you're not blessed. This is very, very important. And I think sometimes this is how this verse is taken slightly out of context to indicate that you're only blessed if you have lots of children. And I don't think that's what this is saying. Now, you are blessed if you have many children, but it's only one way of blessing. Children are a blessing, not the only blessing. In fact, if you look through Scripture, you see time and time again people who do not have children. And in fact, Matthew 19 and 10 and 1 Corinthians 7 and 7 talks about how it's better to not be married so that you can purposely serve the Lord. It would be hard for us to square the concept of the only way we can be blessed or indicate that we're blessed is with children when at the same time there are scriptures, Christ himself telling us and encouraging us to stay single so that we can devote ourselves to the Lord. So I just want to make sure we understand that while children are certainly a blessing, it's not the only blessing that we have. We also have to understand that this is uh, somewhat of a, a metaphor, talking about arrows in the hand of a warrior. In ancient times, a large family meant safety. The larger your family, the more you had to work, the more you had to sow, as we just talked about, the more you had to guard yourself, the more that when the father, the head of the house, was approaching the gate, which in ancient times was the area of courts when people were there to have business and discussion. When they brought their children with them, who were a multitude, there was less fighting, there was less concern because they could take a firm stand. The New Testament tells us that we are God's children. John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So, how big is God's quiver? Doesn't matter. Big enough to handle all of us. He wants all of us to be the straight arrows in his hand. And so as we consider the fact that if you know the Lord, you become one of his children. While we should and ought to raise children and know that they are a blessing from the Lord, we are also to seek out others who need to become his spiritual children. If you have children, they're a blessing. But we must also be concerned with God's spiritual children by making disciples, not just biological offspring. And so as we consider where we are today, as we consider the blessing of children, let us consider our physical children, but let us also consider our spiritual health. Let us also consider that others need to become God's spiritual children and that we are to direct others to that final outcome. Because all can be saved. It's not like there's only so much room in his quiver. 
All of us have the opportunity to become spiritual children of God. And those of us who are spiritual children should be directing those to him. Do you see how all this goes together? Do you see how the more and more that we study scripture, we understand the whole concept? Do we see how in this powerful way that these different men were used at different times in different ways to have a singular and conclusive point and direction pointing toward the Lord? This is Solomon speaking here. And look at how much it aligns with what David said a few chapters before. And what an unknown author said a few lines before that. Why? Because it is the Lord who worked all of it together. So whether we are talking about spiritual children being a blessing and arrows in God's quiver, or we're talking about the water that comes to the desert, or we're talking about being obedient and planting the seeds and receiving a reward with joy and shouts of praise, it all comes to the same idea that we are to be obedient to the Lord, that we are to do His work, not our own, so that it is fruitful, and that we will rejoice when the blessing comes. We are to give our lives to Him or we live in vain. And we don't know how long until that's over. We heard that this morning, didn't we? Was it 19 was the youngest one of the four you knew? Six. Six, 19, early 40s. We've got those ages here, don't we? We have no assurances. We live in a difficult world. We live in a world that we are told is currently, not permanently, but currently run by the enemy. We live in a desert. We are captive in snares. Until we live our life for the Lord, we will not see the water come. We will not be released from the snare. We will not have a harvest and we will not be blessed unless we are spending our time and our effort, our labor, our watching and our building, building up things for him, with him, through him and by him. And so I ask you this week, will you build a house on him? Will you watch with his eyes for others? Will you labor on behalf of him? Or will we leave unchanged, going back to our homes, back to our lives, back to our jobs, back to our school, back to whatever life has for you, and continue just running a race and going nowhere, planting without any tears of sorrow and not expecting to get anything back, working and working and working, for no lasting reward? Or will you do those things under the direction of the Lord and receive the blessing for you and for others? And that's the key. I just want to make sure we understand this. There are times in our lives when the Lord tells us very specifically to do something exclusively for Him. The rest of the time, He has already told us what to do. And when we go about our lives, we should have him with us. 